It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT from this week, you can transfer your child trust fund into a junior ISA. But how easy is it? And should you even bother with tax-advantaged children's savings products? Why the wall of pension money set to hit the buy-to-let market could actually be just a trickle. And the new reliefs and allowances available to taxpayers and savers from this week. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all this week's money news in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford and Adam Palin, plus a special guest, Lee Robertson of Wealth Management Group Investment Quorum. This week saw the start of seismic changes to the pension system, which we have discussed many times on The Money Show. But there have also been changes at the other end of the age spectrum. From this week, you can also transfer your child trust fund into a junior ISA. Child trust funds were introduced in 2005, and there are over 6.5 million of them. Every child born between September 2002 and the end of 2010 has one, opened either by its parents or by the government on their behalf. But child trust funds have been criticised for being poor value with limited product choice and high charges. Junior ISAs, launched in 2011, are generally cheaper to run and more flexible. Both products come with relatively small contribution limits, £4,080 in the 2015-16 tax year, and both automatically pass the money on to the child when he or she turns 18. So, should you transfer your CTF? How is it done? And what about other forms of saving and investing for children? And should you even be funding a child's investments instead of your own? I'm joined by Lee Robertson of Wealth Management Group Investment Quorum. Lee, most people seem to be of the view that junior ISAs are much the better product compared to a CTFs. Is that right? Do CTFs have any redeeming features at all? Well, I guess the Child Trust Fund was the original child saving um, initiative that, that came in under the last government. The redeeming factors were that there were very low contribution limits, that um, £250 was put in per child by the government, and people who didn't uh, take this up were automatically, had their children automatically enrolled. So that there were redeeming factors, but I think they've been largely surpassed by the new junior ISA. And what about the practicalities of transfer? If you uh, decide that you do want to ditch the CTF and, and uh, switch it to a junior ISA, what do you have to do and in what rough order? 
Uh, the rough order is very much that you open the new junior ISA and then ask for it to be transferred. Some people will do that within the same firm. Uh, as many firms who originally offered the child trust fund are offering junior ISAs. But if you're moving away to another provider, it's my understanding that you do the junior ISA form, get that open, and then do the transfer. Now, some parents or grandparents in many cases uh, save children through other means, uh, either just in a normal uh, savings account or investment account, or they use a bare trust uh, structure which allows the child to be named as the beneficiary and any income treated as theirs within some restrictions. What are the advantages of those uh, methods of saving versus, um, versus, say, junior ISAs? And is it possible to transfer from them into a junior ISA? Whenever one uses trust, one's got to be aware of tax and just be aware of tax. Uh, the advantages of, of the bare trust would potentially you could have more money in there above the limits of the junior ISA, but once again, there may be tax implications. Control is, is another idea. Um, with a junior ISA from 16, the child can manage their own money, uh, although they can't have access to it until they're 18. So there is some control element there with bare ISAs. Um, but I, I would suspect those are for larger amounts of money that are being passed through. And if you wanted to transfer, then presumably that uh, it's not like a CTF transfer. It's more like a sort of bed and ISA transaction, is That's it? exactly right. Yes, it is. So you would have to sell the underlying assets first and remit the money into the junior ISA. And presumably then you would have to stick within the annual subscription limits. You would. And the annual subscription limits for this year, of course, are £4,080. OK. With um, junior ISAs and saving for children generally. Um, people tend to talk about very worthy things like um, funding a first uh, house deposit or, or helping meet the costs of university education. But the reality, as you've mentioned, is that basically once the, once the child turns 18, they get the cash automatically and they can spend it on a gap year or a, a motorbike and some tattoos. Um, is there a case for, for keeping control and keeping the money out of a junior ISA? I suspect there is. I mean, I, I, I do think, though, that... Um, that people are often given less credit than they're due. Uh, we've seen the same in the pension environment where uh, the, the, the big discussion is everyone's going to rush out and, as, as Steve Webb famously said, buy, possibly buy Lamborghinis. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be appearing that way. And I think it, it is very right that if, if a parent or grandparent has saved on behalf of their child for a number of years, they will have talked to them over a number of years about what that uh, that money was actually for. But you're absolutely right. There is absolutely nothing to stop people at 18 when they get access to the money to do with it as they wish. We know that um, in, in Britain, most people don't use their full ISA allowance um, each year. And actually, a lot of people who save into ISAs just save into cash. Uh, where should saving for children sit, the overall sort of order of priorities for, for family finances? I, I, talking as a wealth manager, I, I think one has to get one's own finances right first. We're, we're looking at a, a huge demographic change where people are living longer. They're going to need income in retirement for many more years than traditionally has been the case. So I would say on the hierarchy, it probably comes further down than one's own personal finances. But I understand why parents and grandparents want to, to give this leg up to uh, children coming through. Thanks very much, Lee. That was Lee Robertson of Investment Quorum. My Serious Money column in this week's FT Money looks at the CTF and JISA regime and the changes that have been announced. I'll declare an interest here. I've just transferred into JISAs, but having done so, I remain somewhat unconvinced about their merits. FT Money is available as part of the Weekend FT, online at ft.com forward slash money, and on iPad and Android devices. Still to come on the show, 
Can you claim the transferable tax allowance? Are you eligible for the nil rate savings ban? We bring you up to speed on the other changes that take effect this week. First, though, back to pensions. Now that people over 55 can dip into their pension pots much more easily, many have predicted that a wall of cash is going to hit the property market. It's not hard to see why. Real estate is a British obsession, whereas pensions are often regarded as a prison for your money. And there's a huge property lobby busy marketing all sorts of schemes, ideas, and properties to those wondering what to do with their pension savings. But is it a good idea to spend your accumulated pension savings on property? And if it is, are most people in a position to do so? After all, the average pension pot is a pretty measly size. James Pickford has been looking at whether the supposed wall of money will amount to something rather more underwhelming. James, first of all, using pension cash to buy a house isn't necessarily the wisest move from a tax point of view, is it? No, there are massive tax considerations um, when you're taking money out of uh, a pension pot, uh, essentially getting rid of the pension wrapper and using it to buy property. Um, it's only the first uh, 25% uh, typically of uh, a lump sum um, uh, that you take out of a, a pension that is tax-free. And the rest of it uh, will be taxed at your, your um, income tax rate. And so if you, uh, if you decide to take your entire pension pot, for instance, um, in order to invest it in a property, it may be that in that year it pushes you into a higher income tax rate. And so what you're doing effectively is taking an investment which is protected from the tax man and um, it, you could end up paying as much as 60% tax on it in order to get into another asset class which um, carries all sorts of um, questions over uh, income and uh, capital value. Of course, there will be some people with big pension pots who can afford to deploy cash into property. They've got enough of it to provide for their retirement needs elsewhere. But the reality is that most people actually don't have big pension savings. The average uh, annuitised sum is about £30,000. Are they going to get that much for their money if they decide to go into property? Well, if you look at the distribution of pensions wealth in the in the age group of 55 to 64, that's for people who who haven't yet started um, taking any money out of their pension. It's a bit higher. It's about 78,000. Um, but even so, it's pretty much only the top 10% of um, uh, pension uh, wealth um, owners, as it were, pension wealth holders, who can afford to buy a property outright uh, without a mortgage, um, you know, it, based on, uh, on, on the amount of money they can take out. And if even there, if you look at the geographic distribution of house prices, you'll, it's, it's pretty clear that there are parts of the country, such as London and the South East, um, where you know, price growth has been uh, stratospheric in the last uh, 10 years, where it's going to be much harder to buy. And the evidence it shows that the places where property is most affordable, and that is particularly in parts of the north, um, are not the places where the pension wealth is, is generally concentrated. And therefore, uh, one of the things that, that they say about buy-to-let is you should always buy in a market you know, uh, rather than somewhere that's, um, that's necessarily at a, a, an arm's length uh, geographically. State agents, of course, have something of a vested interest in pushing property and buy-to-let as an investment. 
Um, is there much evidence based on the sort of first week of, of pension reforms that people are uh, that raiding their funds with the intention of getting into the property market? Well, certainly, um, the work that um, my, my colleague Joe Cumbo has done um, to, to test the waters on this uh, suggests there's been a surge in calls to pension providers this week, uh, sort of double or triple the usual number, um, about the pension freedom. So there's a lot of interest in what, in what people can do um, and in the calculations they want to make. Um, but uh, the agents, the property agents I've spoken to and the uh, mortgage brokers and pension advisors have very much um, poured cold water on the idea of, of a wall of money. Um, the, just to give one example, uh, there was a, a survey done by Fidelity um, of people who were uh, about to um, make the decision about their, their pensions. And they found that only 4% of people were planning to do buy-to-let uh, in this survey. And finally, James, what would your advice be to people thinking about uh, taking all or part of their uh, pension fund and using it uh, for investment in property? Well, the calculation is all important. I mean, I mentioned uh, income tax rates, but you've also your any rent you make from the property will be taxed uh, as normal income. Um, and also, when you try and um, sell the property, if it's a second home, which typically it would be as buy to let, it, it, you're going to be charged capital gains tax um, of as much as high as. 20, 28%. And inheritance tax, if you try and pass it on, will also will also apply. So you have none of the protections that you normally do with your primary residence. You've also got to consider that you may well be concentrating your portfolio of investments in property to an extent which is, is potentially risky. Uh, the other thing that a lot of people um, assume with property is that house prices will continue to rise to the extent that they have done over the last 10 to 15 years. And um, as we've seen a softening um, in the last year in house prices, that's a difficult assumption to continue to make. But I think the overall, uh, the overall advice would be you, know, you just have to make the calculations very carefully. Take everything into account. Don't take a rosy view of things like void periods where there is someone, uh, where, where there is no one in your property, which are quite common, uh, tax maintenance costs, uh, administration costs, wear and tear, and also agents' fees. If particularly if you are, uh, if you do buy a property which is uh, you know, far flung from where your your home base is, you may well want an agent to to look after it for you, uh, which will again incur further costs. And then when you've got a figure for a percentage of return on that investment you're in a position to compare it with other kinds of investment. Thanks very much, James. Pensions and property are the subjects of our cover feature this week, and we've lots more about the pros and cons of using pensions to fund property and a map of the country showing how far the average pension pot would go. We've also got reports from the front line in the first week of pension freedom. What have savers been doing? What have they been asking their providers? We'd love to know what you think too. You can email us. The address is money at ft.com or you can reach us on Twitter at ftmoney. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website. The address is ft.com forward slash money. A few weeks ago, George Osborne announced a raft of new tax measures in his final budget for this parliament. Many of them depend upon the Conservatives being re-elected in May. But some of the measures announced in 2014's budget are only just coming into effect. They include, obviously, the massive pension reforms and the transferability of child trust funds, as we discussed earlier. 
But there are also some new tax rules and reliefs which aren't being so widely advertised at the moment, partly because the government has entered its pre-election purda. These include the transferable personal allowance, new rules based on shared parental leave and the generous savings income allowance. Remember all those from last year? Don't worry if you can't. Adam Palin is here as an aid memoir. Adam, it's the start of a new tax year. Lots of new rules coming in. Uh, let's start with um, with the shared parental leave. What's the story with that? Okay, well, um, the shared parental leave is uh, essentially aimed at having a uh, an allocation of weeks that both mother and father can share between them. It's not quite as revolutionary as um, as as it might sound. However, it's more a replacement for the existing system, which includes additional paternity leave. Uh, and in fact uh, offers very similar terms. Now, to give an illustration, um, let's say we have uh, a mother who is 20 weeks into her 50 50 weeks of maternity leave after the two statutory maternity and paternity weeks. Now, she has 30 weeks left. She can decide to end her maternity leave, and then those 30 weeks can be split between her and her spouse. Now, one of the advantages of doing that, aside from the obvious, uh, you know, her being able to go back to work, uh, would be that they could take time at the same uh, the same period, and it can be taken in three blocks. In terms of how much uh, how much you get paid under shared parental leave, payment is around one hundred and forty pounds a week, or ninety percent of uh, the employee's average earnings. So, in most cases, that would be the one hundred and forty pounds a week. So, this isn't some enormous tax break. And in many cases, mothers should bear in mind that they might receive full pay during maternity. So in financial terms, it doesn't really differ that much from the regime that preceded it? No, it's just more flexibility in terms of time. Okay, and that's clearly aimed at all those hardworking families that all politicians like to target, um, as is the transferable tax allowance. Can you remind us what that entails? Sure. Well, that allows a spouse who's not liable for income tax, so that means they're earning less than 10600 a year, to transfer up to 10% of that to their spouse. However, they can only do that if their spouse is a basic rate taxpayer and earning less than £43,000 or so. So this essentially means that the benefit is up to £212 a year um, that is, uh, is, is going to be mitigated in their spouse's um, tax payments. And what's the difference between that and the married couples allowance, which I still see occasional references to in tax tables and so on? Yeah, well, the the latter only applies to uh, where one spouse was born before 1935, where they're 80 or older. And that is, in fact, a tax rebate, uh, a much more generous tax rebate of between £322 and £835 a year. And if if the marriage was before 2005, that actually goes to the man, even if they're not the the higher earner. I mean, of course, that's only for elderly couples or couples with an elderly spouse. But the other in reality um, is is also going to benefit mainly elderly couples, one of whom may have more savings income, for example. Now, another measure that's uh, aimed at older people uh, that was introduced in the budget last year is this zero rate of tax for uh, uh, some savings income. And that also comes in this week. What's that uh, about? How does that work? Well, this one is for uh, for low earners. So this year, if you're earning less than £15,500, you will pay no tax on your savings income. 
It replaces a 10% starting rate, although that was only on income above the personal allowance of 10,000 last year, to another 2,880. So the benefit really will only be for uh, wealthy savers who uh, are not really earning much anymore. Yeah, so they have uh, a lot of their income comes from from savings income. Yeah. Exactly. And how does that differ from the personal savings allowance that was announced in this year's budget? Well, that's universal. Now, everyone's going to benefit, or everyone can benefit, by up to £200 a year. So if you're basic rate taxpayer, you've got an allowance of £1,000. If you're a higher rate taxpayer, you have a personal savings allowance of £500. And the only people who won't benefit are additional rate taxpayers. Again, those people who earn more than £150,000 a year. Thanks very much, Adam. There's lots more on that story in this weekend's FT Money. Other highlights this week? Ken Fisher, the US wealth manager, says that Mario Draghi's quantitative easing bonanza in Europe is the wrong answer to the wrong problem. But who cares? It will boost share prices anyway. We've more on the policy announced by Labour this week to abolish the non-domicile tax regime and with the latest from our sister publication Investors Chronicle, plus all the latest director's deals. The Money Show will be back from next week, but from now... Sorry... The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Adam, and our special studio guest, Lee Robertson. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets, featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited-edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code MOM.